mindset is everything, right? So you gotta have the right mindset of, of treating this like an assistant that needs some sort of training from you that is not replacing your brain, essentially. I think that, that's the first understanding that you, you have to have. Welcome to the 76th episode of the Struggling Scientist podcast. We are a podcast by scientists, for scientists, anybody science adjacent, and perhaps even hobbyists. My name is Susanna, and I'm here with my co-host, Jaron. Hi. Today, we're talking with our guest, Leonard Naka, who is a professor of user experience, human-computer interaction, and game design at the University of Waterloo. He has written over 200 papers with more than 30k citations in under 15 years and is now advising academics on how to write better papers. We're going to be talking with him about the new age of writing that has started since the introduction of AI and about if academics should use it and if so, how. So let's start. Welcome, Leonard. It's so nice to have you on our podcast today. Thank you so much for the invitation, Susanna and Jaron. Yes. So before we get started talking about today's topic, we would love to know a little bit more about you. So could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Who are you? What's your sort of scientific background? And most important of all, do you have any interesting hobbies? <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so who am I? I'm an academic, as you've already introduced me, that is very interested in user experience. And video games. I actually have one of Europe's first PhD degrees in digital game development. Maybe one of the only ones out of the program <laughs> continued uh, very much long after I, I finished uh, the PhD degree, actually in Sweden. Hmm. Um, so I graduated uh, with an undergrad from a German university. I'm originally from Germany. And then I went to Sweden to do my PhD there. And then after Sweden, I went to Canada to do a postdoc. And then I just kind of stayed in Canada to eventually become a professor, a uh, longer tenure track journey. And I've been a full professor now since three years, I think, ish. And yeah, I've had tenure before that. And now I work at the University of Waterloo, where I run a research group focused on human computer interaction games. So we're always looking at new technologies and how they can help us become more immersed, more motivated, how we can work with technology to improve our lives. Uh, I think that's a big theme uh, that you find in our research area. And so, yeah, that's kind of what makes me excited about the um, research that I do. I'm very excited about studying new technologies and finding new ways to interact with computing systems. But somewhere along the way, I got really interested in, in writing. And I'm, I, I just going back at the episode that you had with Anna just a while back, who's like an excellent writing coach. And funny enough, I think she's also German and she also went to Sweden. So I'm like, maybe there's something they put in the water in, in Sweden that you're just like automatically getting interested in, in writing. But yeah, I don't know. It just kind of was always something that I was interested in and just like figuring out how to write papers. It was my quiet place, my uh, solitude that I could really enjoy when I, you know, worked on a research project. I really enjoyed the writing part a lot, which is funny because once you become a prof, you're kind of moving away <laughs> from, from the writing part a lot. You become a manager and the director and stuff like that. Anyways, yeah, I could talk all day, so I'll <laughs> just pass it on to you. Okay. Oh, hobbies. Hobbies, yes. Oh, yeah, sorry. Totally missed that. So hobbies, you know, like... Obviously, for somebody that studies video games, one of my hobbies is also playing video games. Um, and so, yeah, I sometimes really enjoy uh, something like Uncharted or Tomb Raider or some of these games where you kind of get lost in 
these big, huge worlds and yeah, just kind of really enjoy this escapism that comes with these video games. But as you know, one of my recent hobbies is social media. So <laughs> I kind of turned that into a little bit of a side job here as well. So. The gamification of social media as well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that, that's actually interesting that you mentioned that. So I, I did have a, a very early hit paper, let's say, 10 years ago when gamification just kind of started and we wrote this definition paper of like how to understand gamification in the larger context. We organized a couple of bigger workshops uh, where we explored gamification as a concept. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of, you know, it I, I almost want to say it went a little bit sideways because then marketing kind of took over. It was all about the points, badges, and leaderboards, and we saw gamification everywhere done really not so well where it was all about the extrinsic motivation and trying to mm -hmm. get people to do something for points and we were kind of preaching from the start well this is one way to do it but there's also the intrinsic motivation of course that you want to feel self-determination you want to feel kind of pulled towards something that's meaningful to you mm -hmm. and this has taken i think almost a decade until that's now way more common so we have now i think it's in almost every app that you use, you have some form of gamification. And yes, there's still this sort of hamster wheel extrinsic pull, specifically with social media applications <laughs> that are using this to, to kind of help you keep engaged. But mm -hmm. there are also a lot of applications where we find that we're um, actually producing something meaningful for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we're building a community and things like that. So mm -hmm. um, I think, yeah, that study, of course, makes it very easy to look at social media and just see it as one big playground of ideas and, and you know, promotion and stuff like that. Mm. Yes. Now, like you said, social media, you have become quite well known there as a, as a source for writing tips. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to post about writing tips and how you, how you ended up there, basically? <laughs> yeah, very good question. Thank you very much. I think for me at the beginning, I, again, I, I saw social media as something that was quite interesting, but I also saw, saw the gamified aspect of it. Um, and so I was actually teaching a writing course for seven years at one of our larger conferences, uh, the conference of, uh, uh, it's called CHI, the Conference for Human Factors, trying to get the name right. <laughs> no, it just kind of lose me. It's a, it's a HCI conference, the largest conference. Um, in the HCI field. And so I've been teaching a course on uh, writing there for several years. And then pandemic hit at some point, And I had a lot of students in that course. Uh, I think it was about 100 students during that year. And I kind of felt like, okay, there's something here. Obviously, a lot of people are interested in writing. And also just observing my own students over the years, I always felt like if you're in an engineering heavy discipline or something that is more natural sciences, I guess, like you can say that for most scientific disciplines, nobody is really teaching you how to write. It's more something that's common in the humanities and other fields. But for us, people just kind of assume we know this stuff. And uh, I think it's the same for professors. You know, you become a professor, nobody teaches you how to be a professor. It's just like they assume you have all this knowledge. So I'm like, hmm, there's something here. I have that knowledge and I would love to share that knowledge with people that are interested in it. And so I kind of took to these platforms, LinkedIn and Twitter, uh, back then anyways, what was called Twitter. Um, and um, then, yeah, just kind of practiced uh, writing skills there. I, I set myself a goal to just write every day. I just wanted to practice really different forms of writing because I kind of, you know, felt very confident about my paper writing. I had no clue about how to write on social media. So I studied, you know, all the big accounts and took a lot of wrong advice, I guess, at the beginning for like how to do this. Had some really disastrous threats at the beginning. But eventually, you know, I kind of got a 
hang of it of like how do you actually write for an audience and how do you make these things engaging how do you write your hooks and um how do you actually communicate something meaningful uh, mm -hmm. because again similar to gamification you can have a lot of fluff pieces on social media and you can just be like superficial just doing it for the likes essentially because you mm -hmm. know you can get a lot of likes with a lot of superficial content but eventually having some of these educational bits in there really brings a lot more engagement and a lot more questions. And that's also when I started my newsletter, because I'm just like, it's really nice to have an extra outlet where you can go a little bit deeper and um, communicate some deeper tips. So you already mentioned earlier on that you've been writing for quite a while now, you've uh, written quite a few academic papers as well. So you've also seen how things have sort of, I guess, changed a little bit since the introduction of AI in, in academia. Can you tell us a little bit what how the academic writing landscape looks like since the introduction of AI? What have you seen anything big changes anything like that? Yeah, so I think academics were one of the first to pick it up and and really use it and as much as we are criticizing our students for, for doing the same thing because honestly the last term I think I had one or two assignments that 100% of the students used AI to create the assignment. That's obviously my fault. I need to create better assignments that are easier or that are harder to use AI for or offer explicit instructions in how to use the AI mm -hmm. to solve the assignment. Uh, so I think that's the way forward in terms of teaching. But in terms of writing uh, for academic conferences and uh, journals, you now see all of these specialized tools that a lot of our colleagues like Ilya and Mushtaq, they've been embracing and advertising some of these tools and workflows. And one of the things that you really see there is it is changing the workflow that you have for approaching some of these things. I think specifically literature review is currently everything is about semantic search. Everyone's trying to understand how these tools can help and how we can formalize them. A lot of the times the problem is still there is a black box with the AI. A lot of these mm. companies will not openly disclose their algorithms. And as long as you don't know what the algorithm does, you can't really follow something structural like the Prisma approach when you do a literature review and you really have that system in there that's replicable. As you know, in science, it's all about replication. And if we can't see the underlying me mechanisms, we cannot replicate it because we don't know what's happening in there. So that's, I think, one of the bits that are a little bit concerning about the increased use of some of the literature review tools. But in terms of writing, I actually think it's quite positive what's happening. Um, Obviously, all the larger publishers are trying to come up with policies, right? Mm -hmm. So you see Elsevier, actually, I think Elsevier is different. <laughs> they just said, oh, we're just going to buy all the AI stuff and we're going to put it in Scopus AI because we have a lot of money and we're just <laughs> going to pretty much just create the ultimate tool. Who knows? I, our university hasn't bought it. This thing's going to be so expensive anyway. So we'll, we'll see what it actually does in the end and how it delivers. But <clears throat> that's quite interesting to see on the publishing end. But I think for the associations and other people that are involved in the publishing process, like for me, the big one is ACM, the Association of Computing Machinery, is a large association that publishes these uh, kind of computing papers that I write a lot. And they came up with guidelines pretty quickly. And so in those guidelines, the interesting thing is what do you need to disclose, disclose and when do you need to disclose it? And even though the guidelines are there and the policies are there, I think a lot of the times it can actually hurt the publishing process if you pre-disclose AI use. You see these stories on LinkedIn and, and even on, on X quite a bit uh, where people are talking about, yeah, you know, I've been accused of using mm. AI in my publishing, but I haven't actually used it. And, you know, the, the, the problem really is you can't, like we're in an age where you can't tell anymore. You, you, it's, stuff has become so good 
as you know, even with videos, deep faking, voice faking, this is all, um, I, I tried that out, I think more than a year ago. In, in February, I gave a talk about um, deep faking stuff and I deep faked myself, I think within five minutes, <laughs> I had a deep fake clone of myself and voice and everything just when these things got started. And people are just like, what? <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is happening. And so I think the interesting thing here is to see that these tools can really empower young writers and we don't have enough training right now. We really don't have enough training to help us become more productive, become empowered by these tools to create essentially better papers. So we really have a need, I think, for not just students, but also for um, senior academics to understand A, what the tools can do and B, how we can make them a valuable valuable part of my process. One of the things that I encountered early on was um, a lot of my colleagues, sort of you know more senior level academics, were kind of pushing back. They were a little afraid about what this will do. And so the natural response is like, I don't want to do anything with this. I just, I don't even want to touch it. This is going to ruin publishing. There's no original thought anymore. And I think we're kind of, you know, this is sort of the anxiety at the start of the hype curve. If you look at the Gartner hype cycle, this is actually interesting <laughs> because Gartner hype cycle was something that I had to look at quite a lot when gamification was on it because it was like on the top of the hype cycle in the 2010s. And now this is where generative AI sits. It's like on the top <laughs> of this hype cycle that Gartner publishes. And so we're kind of, you know, nearing this value of disillusionment or whatever it's called. So it's like, Right now, it's all hype that can do everything, but soon we'll find out it cannot do everything. Mm -hmm. It can only do certain things. And I think that's where educators come in. That's where the profs need to come in and, and people that actually have experience in writing. And they can sort of provide a more leveled understanding of here. Um, I've used it. This is what I think is useful. And this is what I think doesn't work. Uh, I know you're a favorite sponsor of the show, which... At some point, we will hear probably in the background, <laughs> Jenny AI. Actually, uh, one of our students is involved with that company. Mm. And um, I think it's, it's quite good what they're doing in terms of the co-writing, right? But of course, there are limitations. There are limitations in terms of like how the citations are being picked. Mm. Um, there are you know, limitations in terms of how good it can guess. But of course, we love this whole idea of not being stuck in a writing block mm. when we're just staring at it. And so... For that, these co-writers are super powerful, and I really enjoy that. But, you know, um, this is something we need to learn, and we need to get better education for it. We are very excited to be able to introduce you to our new sponsor, Jenny AI. Not only does Jenny make our podcast possible, it also makes our life as scientists so much easier. Jenny is an all-in-one writing assistant that has everything that we have been missing in our AI tools. Yes, first off, unlike other AI tools, it actually finds accurate information in papers and cites its sources. It does not make things up and only uses real verified information that you can then also check the source of. Second, it's a writing assistant trained for academic papers and helps you write your paper by suggesting the next sentence or the end of your sentence. Or, if you get really stuck, you can ask it to write an entire paragraph. Completely removing the writer's block I so often struggle with when I don't know the right words to make my point. It helped me write an introduction to a paper I've been struggling with in half an hour. It even suggests which papers to cite. You can add your own library or search the entire internet for papers. Just type the add symbol to easily add a reference and it gets automatically added to the reference list. And the last thing we absolutely love is that it has an AI chatbot that can see your document and give feedback on how to improve your manuscript. 
or you can ask it questions, such as what are the potential therapeutic benefits of dot dot dot, and it will search through the papers for you for the answer. I can only say that my stress level has gone down significantly since I started using Jenny. Check out the free version now at thestrugglingscientist.com slash Jenny. And if you love it, use the code SCIENCE20 for a 20% discount. Do you think it is currently already integrated by many researchers? That's, that's a very good question. So I think there is more than you see, and there's more than people are willing to publicly debate because mm -hmm. there's a fear of drawback. I think um, even myself sometimes, I, I sometimes wonder, should I be talking about this this publicly where, mm -hmm. you know, 10,000 of views can, or yeah, 10,000 people will, will see this in a day or something like that. Um, and yeah, is there going to be pushback? Well, I haven't really encountered it yet in, in reviews because sometimes, you know, people just read your stuff online and you don't even know these people but they might end up your reviewers and all of a sudden you get this weird comment in your reviews and you're just like this has nothing to do with my paper so clearly this person kind of <laughs> looked me up somewhere else and you know then it becomes strange and that shouldn't be the case that's not good science but it happens right like people are people uh, at the end of the day we're dealing with humans um so i don't think a lot of i think there's a lot more people using it than are disclosing it officially and and i do think there is definitely an interest from some universities that are future thinking to incorporate corporate, you know, uh, courses in their curriculum that can help train students for these tools. Now, of course, in academia, as you know, it's more about methods and concepts than about tools training. Tools training is really more sort of on, on the job training. So I think it really boils down to people understanding uh, the concepts, like what my colleague Ethan Mollick does in his posts, right? Like he kind of tries to break apart, you know, like how does prompting work? How does this mm. whole thinking on the machine learning level work? And I think that's kind of where we need to head as academics. Mm. AI has now been out for, let's say, one, two years since like ChatGPT really started as well. What have you seen has been some of the more significant impacts of AI on the academic writing, specifically when it comes to like the quality of the writing and maybe the efficiency? Yeah, that's a really great question, Jaron. I think in terms of quality, um, it's hard to judge because we we really don't see the before after quality mm -hmm. when we sit on a committee or on, on a, in a peer review um, cycle. One of the things that we're noticing, at least in my field, is this horrible exponential curve uh, of publications. And I think that was even mm -hmm. before AI, but I think AI is going to make that even worse. People are already more productive. There's more papers submitted than ever to some of these larger venues, which puts a huge strain on peer review, puts a, puts a huge strain on the volunteering work that many academics do as an unpaid part of their job. Mm. And that can't be good you know, for the development of science in general to, to increase that strain. So a lot of these uh, publishing houses and editorial boards are looking for ways to improve that process because right now we're kind of at this point where I think a lot of academics, A, they can write better papers, specifically if English is your second language. Mm -hmm. um, I find that even for myself, I think I have a lot of experience writing in English. I've actually never, this is interesting because again, when I was uh, listening to Anna talking about that she originally published some stuff in German. I never actually published anything in German. Mm -hmm. Like from the first start, I published in English. So um, it's, it's a very different thing if you always think about your papers in English. Mm. Um, but I think if you have moved from a, one language to another language, there, there is probably some benefit to these tools. Like uh, some tools obviously also have translations built in, which I think is fantastic, right? Uh, even Notion AI does that. You could mm. write the sentence in Dutch and then you translate it into English quite quickly. Um, so that would maybe help 
formulate something that you might have trouble formulating in English if it's not your mother tongue. But the so that's a quality aspect. And then I think the other side of it is what you see in institutions that have a lot of student population that they can do this at scale now. So mm. they can actually write these papers. They have, uh, I've heard of an institution, not going to disclose names or countries, but there are some countries and institutions where you have like a hundred students working on this stuff under one or two professors. And now they're AI powered. So <laughs> they're less likely to produce garbage off the bat because all the papers are going to meet a minimum quality bar, at least in terms of language. Before that, they might have been weeded out for language, but now not anymore. And then they all submit. They all submit to the same venue. And then you have the natural trickle down of peer review is, as you know, like, don't get me started on peer review is broken. That's an entire <laughs> separate episode, but it is broken. And so one of the things that we see, the more you submit, of course, the more will get accepted, right? Sure, if you increase the quality, you also increase the acceptance rate. But Overall, if you produce more input, you will get more output. The, the funnel works only to a degree. And that means these people end up with more publications, which then has, of course, a financial impact and other things. So the question you got to ask yourself then is, th those are the people you're competing with. If you're at an institution where you only have one or two PhD students, like from the prof side now, what does that mean for your paper strategy going forward as you're looking at some of these super productive institute center things where they now have a they have the the, the manpower of, of of putting all these people to work but they also have the addition of artificial intelligence to to raise the the bar of of you know minimum acceptance so no more desk rejects for these uh folks and a, a much higher strain on the review system mm -hmm. the question is where does it lead us right i think where it should lead us and one of the things that we are not embracing right now and this is where maybe some criticism might come in from my colleagues, but I think a great way to use AI would be to, for peer review. And yes, there's something AI can't do in terms of peer review, like in terms of synthesizing existing knowledge, but it can definitely pinpoint things in a paper and mm. help us quickly assess a paper. I mean, let's face it, that's how many students are already using it. One of the favorite functionalities for me anyways in, in Jenny AI is this chat with PDF functionality mm. that I think they bought chat PDF, right? And that's how that was integrated. And so th this is so cool, and I'm sure you love it too, that you can just upload the paper and you can quickly chat with it, right? Like, sure, we still, the papers we really like, we will still read. But if you do the pre-assessment of a paper, instead of having to skim everything, you can now just quiz for the things you need to know and then be able to find that specific section. Super powerful. And I think that is something that could help us in the review process. Now, of course, right now, a lot of the review systems don't even allow pre-publishing papers to be fed to a generative AI. This is, mm -hmm. again, and I, unfortunately, I don't think all reviewers respect that, but I, I think this makes sense, right? Because the paper is still under consideration. And just like with NDAs in the games industry, in the academic world, if your paper is not published yet, everyone's mm -hmm. kind of hush-hush about it, even though, you know, this is actually... Fun fact, this is not true for AI papers. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, but AI papers. So if you publish a paper about AI, specifically generative AI, that community has completely changed. So what happens there now is they just upload their paper to archive, like before peer review. It's just mm -hmm. like, I have an idea. I ran the study. Whoop, paper goes up on archive. It's still under peer review. So, But it's already getting mm -hmm. cited. It's already getting traction because the cycles are so short in, in generative AI. 
that they really push to get the thing out there. And so really interesting change that has happened in that community. And then, of course, that makes you go, and like if the paper's already getting citations and whatnot, and like what good is peer review at the end of the day? Mm. Because in theory, some people could also argue with internet and everything, we don't really need publishers anymore. Everything's electronic anyways. You can just upload it somewhere on a website. So in theory, we could also say, let's let let the public sort it out. Let the AI search bots of the future sort out which <laughs> papers are actually helpful. But I mean, that's a pretty radical idea. So I don't know if, <laughs> if any publishing houses would like that. Yeah, I think that hurts their bottom line at a certain point. Uh, of course. Uh, you know, it's, it's all about money. At the end of the day, we're saying, you know, we're academics. We're all about the proliferation of knowledge. But we're also under the domination of publishing houses and, and a lot of people with a lot of money that have this thing under control. So it's, yeah, it's a weird part of the job that, you know, there are definitely money-driven interests at, at stake here that influence the way that we make our knowledge available. And even, uh, you know, it, it influences all parts of the process because this will also influence, of course, how you get tenure, how your career goes, how your overall yeah, how your professional building of your profile um goes i mean it's the same it's the same on the other hand in social media right because the way that you're able to leverage social media influences how successful you are as an entrepreneur <laughs> so it's, it's that's the marketing side of it in the academic side of it we're kind of bound to publishing houses and great mm -hmm. journals on the social media side of it we're bound to the big platforms that give the distribution at the beginning interesting how these two worlds have something <laughs> in common <laughs> now our audience consists mainly of phd students so let's say you are a simple phd student and you want to get started with using ai what are some of the problems you might encounter what are some of the ethical considerations you might need to take into consideration and how how do you how do you use these ai tools well what would you say are is a good practice in yeah. using AI tools? Yeah, that's a great question. I think at the beginning, uh, mindset is everything, right? So you got to have the right mindset of, of treating this like an assistant that needs some sort of training from you that is not replacing your brain, essentially. I think that that's the first understanding that you, you have to have. Um, mm. I think a lot of the times, at least at the beginning, I think it's getting better right now. But half a year ago, when a lot of my students discovered this for the first time, they saw it as a shortcut, right? Like this is a shortcut. This is a way that I can, you know, get it get ahead before my profs find out about this situation. And 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 it was kind of used as this whole like uh, secret superpower that you just gotta know how to click and where to click and and things like that. And you're using PaperPal or you're using uh, some other tools that that really kind of help you outline stuff. Um, I think where we need to go as thoughtful PhD students is if we want to adopt these things, we need to get good at documenting our process, not just for ourselves, because it helps us understand the skills that we're actually learning as, as we're understanding these tools. But it also helps us in case we are ending up publishing this at some point, it helps us provide the documentation of how the AI has been involved in the writing of some of these things. You might have heard the story of one of these award-winning Japanese authors that admitted that 10 or 20% of her novel has actually been written by AI, and she won like one of the literary awards in Japan. And so, you know, uh, I, I absolutely think these things are assistance and they can really help us to greatness. 
by being able to converse. Just imagine, you know, you have this clever lab partner sitting right next mm. to you as you're doing your writing. That's kind of how these, these AI tools can work if you know how to prompt them right. I mean, that's currently the, the issue is that a lot of it comes from how good you are at prompting. I think that will eventually go away with models becoming cleverer, more, more clever. Uh, you can see it with Gemini is already providing a lot of inferences. And that is actually kind of cool. ChatGPT is still great if you feed it the right prompt. But I think with a core, uh, simple prompt, Gemini does a little bit of a better job in terms of understanding what it is you actually want it, because it mm. does a lot more inferences based on, based on the text strings that you feed it. So I think there's a really interesting thing going on here about learning how to use this as an assistant as a tool that will help you. And the ethical part is, of course, transparency, right? Like never, it's, it's just about truth and lying. Never, you know, be not truthful about the work that you did. Document the work that you did with the AI assistant. And that's, that's the same that I tell my students when they do assignments for my class. I'm like, I want you to use these tools. I'm encouraging you to use these tools. You just need to be transparent about how you use them and you need to document that. You can't just... Uh, feed it in there. And the interesting thing is when I did that, I actually found out that the major use case of students in my classes is, is rephrasing, right? Like they feed it in there and say, here's three bullet points. Prof said the assignment has to be 300 words. Rephrase this into a 300 word paragraph. Okay, my my mistake for asking for these specifics for the assignment. Okay, I got to change that next year, right? Um, but the, the interesting thing is, of course, that a lot of the publishing houses that I talked about earlier and the associations, they actually allow that. And you don't even need to disclose that bit. If you're using it just as an editing assistant, uh, you don't even have to disclose that you used it. This is similar, I think, to back in the day before we had AI, um, a lot of ESL, uh, English as a Second Language authors, used um, editors to help them improve mm -hmm. their manuscripts, right? Because that, and that's kind of common. Uh, I even used that during one part in, in my career. I used a, an editor for my papers. And I, I really loved what I learned from the editor about mm -hmm. writing in English um, at, the, at the very beginning of my career. And so one of the things that I think is great about using these tools is if you treat it like an assistant, if you treat it as an intelligent or semi-intelligent um, entity that can pass thoughts back and forth with you, it really helps you reflect on your own process, not just your writing, and your editing, but also maybe on your research question, on the results that you produced. Uh, so a stimulating discussion, discussion can never be bad, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, using these tools to produce a stimulating discussion as you're going into the, the building of a research portfolio, I think is so powerful. So absolutely do it like that. If you're a, a junior PhD student, treat it as a smart postdoc on your team, essentially, that you can, if you ask the postdoc the right questions, the postdoc will give you the right answers. And mm -hmm. that will, of course, help you write a better paper or, or do better research. I think one of the things, um, this is interesting, maybe, because we started that almost a year ago now, is that we used uh, ChatGPT when we were designing the experiments. We actually like tossed some questions back and forth. And it's like, this is the kind of independent variables, dependent variables that we're thinking about. Um, what do you think? Like, what what are the areas that make sense here? Is uh, have we thought about all possible conditions? And just kind of you know uh, go back and forth in some of these ideas helps you specifically when you're building experimental studies, right? Like experimental studies. You've you've done experimental studies in, in your research. As you know, if you build the experiment wrong, that can be really, really annoying because you just spend half a year or a year running this thing. And you're like, oh, I forgot. I forgot this one thing. And now I'd have to do it all again. 
right? Like, and here, I think it's super powerful. Uh, of course, if you have a great supervisor, your supervisor will support you. But unfortunately, in most cases, supervisors are super busy. They don't always provide the support that we need. So having this additional AI-powered supervisor assistant uh, at your place will also help you maybe direct a more targeted question to your supervisor and say, listen, I've thought this through. Uh, here are some, some things that I'm still not clear about where I really need your domain expertise. Schedule a five-minute meeting with your supervisor. Both of you might feel better after this because you have a very targeted question. They mm. can give you a very targeted answer. You end up with a great experimental design, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. I really like how you 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 phrased it and like that it's really about the mindset and that it's really about like I don't want to say optimizing but really like optimizing the overall like the areas that basically a PhD student can really uh, focus on and making that basically making the entire PhD experience where it matters like a little bit better but maybe like to continue on that a little bit um so there are obviously, as you've also mentioned, quite a few different AI tools like Gemini, ChatGPT, Jenny. Um, yeah. Can you recommend any AI tools or platforms that you think might be particularly beneficial for academic writers or PhD students? Let me check my affiliate deals. No, just, <laughs> just I think kidding. we can check ours too. <laughs> no. Um, I've actually been working, let me see if I can pull this up. I've actually been working on a little uh, thing together uh, with my research group. So we currently have this AI task force uh, with some mm -hmm. of my PhD students that are super interested in, in these AI tools and kind of working on uh, possibly a paper, maybe a white paper, something along those lines. Uh, but we're looking at uh, what some of these tools can do for us. So I'm going to give you a breakdown of mm -hmm. some of the ones that I find most interesting in my work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think to get started, for your audience as students, the best ones are the literature research ones and the co-writers. I think those two categories of tools are super, super useful for PhD students. Now, I'm going to mention a couple that are really useful for myself on the sort of editing, reviewing student paper side mm -hmm. that um, kind of changed my process. Uh, so two that I found really actually three that I found are real game changers, and they're kind of the same in functionality. Uh, one of the ones that's a little bit older is called Odemic. This is a synthetic text-to-speech tool that uh, you can upload a paper and it will break down the paper sections and read it to you like an audiobook. Mm -hmm. The only thing with Odemic is a little bit dated by now, so some of the, the voices are not so great. I found Speechify. It's unfortunately extremely expensive, so uh, mm -hmm. quite quite ridiculous uh, price. But I found that really nice in terms of voice quality. You can also, and this is kind of like what Eleven Labs does, where you can just upload your voice and clone it. Speechify actually only needs, I think, 10 or 15 seconds of your voice to clone it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this is quite interesting. So I'm reading my uh, the research papers of my students in my own voice back to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, that is so interesting. Um, but so th that is something I've been really enjoying because for me, what I usually do is I, I upload the paper on my iPad and then I use a tool and look these up again. But I use one of those annot annotation tools. I think Notable is one of them and Goodreader is another one. Uh, so you can upload the PDF and you can annotate it. But I usually like to listen to it as I'm annotating it because mm -hmm. that way I have a given pace. So I set it to 1.4 speed and I know I got to you know keep up the speed. I'm highly concentrated about the paper as I'm annotating it and, and going through it. Um, one of the tools recently that I started using more for that is Readwise. You might have come across mm -hmm. this. This is more like a RSS feed aggregator. You can feed your newsletters to it and all things. But it has this thing called Unreal Speech. So I think it's like an API that they're using. And that is hands down the best text-to-speech voice on the market. I think it's like a male and a female voice. 
But this is so realistic. It's so good. I've just been enjoying that even more than my own synthesized voice <laughs> um, as I'm reading through these papers. Uh, so this is one of the tricks that I have. Annotating on a, on a tablet while listening to the paper just really helps me go through these really quickly. And then, of course, all the co-writers that are out there. Of course, the most notable ones, Jenny. They've had great promotions. They're really popular. Isaac Editor is another one that uh, is, is a much smaller one-person project, Yomu AI. I've actually chatted with the developer of Yomu a couple of times on X. He's come to our spaces. Super nice person. Uh, I really like his approach. It was really nice to get some insights on how he's built this tool. And you can tell he's specifically for academics. Like Jenny, I think, is a little bit broader, has a little bit more functionality, but Yomu is really focused mm. on academic work. And so you can definitely see that in the way that they've built it. And, and that's really nice and powerful. But of course, as you've also mentioned, if you're using it in Word or something like that, PaperPal is kind of the go-to. You know, obviously they've got they've got great marketing, uh, lots of uh, really great collaborations with people on social media. But they also have a really nice tool. The tool, if you're using sort of these visual things, is is really not bad. If uh, you're using LaTeX, which I use for a lot of my papers, uh, it's a little bit more. Uh, painful to write in. <laughs> uh, there's a tool called Overleaf, of course, where you can do it in your browser and you can do it collaboratively, kind of like Google Docs. But there's a cool for that called Writeful, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and that plugs in directly into Overleaf and that kind of helps you uh, get some feedback on the things that you write. Now, on a system level, what I have installed for all of my writing is Quillbot and Grammarly. Grammarly, I think, is one of the biggest ones that everyone knows. And they have this a uh, thing where you can highlight something and then click on improve or give me other su suggestions. So uh, very basic AI, but sometimes it really helps you get out of a funk or getting a sentence that sounds really awkward, rephrased quickly. My favorite is Quillbot. I've been using that for years now. And uh, the actual tool on the website actually has co-writers and, and other things available, which is kind of nice. So it has similar things to Jenny and other things. It just kept adding stuff. But their original functionality was to be a paraphraser. So they kind of really wanted to paraphrase things. And, and that's super helpful if you're editing mm -hmm. uh, stuff and, sure. and you're wanting to make things more simple for your students and stuff like that. On the lit review side, you know, you have, of course, the big ones like LitMaps, fantastic tool. I think it's one of the best out there in terms of really identifying the papers. You have SiteAI, the assistant is really killer. As, as you know, SiteAI also has great uh, social media presence and, and deals like that, but it's, it's also just a really fantastic assistant. And then, of course, you also have other tools that are more focused on the actual review of the literature. So um, SciSpace is, of course, another big one there. And I think SciSpace has grown into this massive tool also with added functionality. I think mm -hmm. SciSpace and Quillbot are kind of the same. They started out as one thing. They just kept adding functionality <laughs> and adding functionality. So they have these full-fledged research slash writing assistants now, which is, I think, super cool. Because again, value for money, right? A lot of these tools charge you an arm and a leg just to use them. Mm -hmm. And you want to ideally get one that does uh, like more value for you. And, you know, I've probably forgot a whole bunch of them. Like I have an entire giant list of things, uh, the chat PDF thing and anything that lets you chat with a PDF. I think there's also something called My AI Drive or something that Ilya uses. Um, like these things are super powerful. If you can upload a PDF somewhere and chat with it, 
super cool. But I think it's also getting integrated in a lot of the tools that you already have, where you can just chat with the existing PDFs, and that's super cool. Maybe one thing to mention is like this core exploration at the start when you want to get started with a project. Mm -hmm. I find something like, for me personally, the Arc browser it just added uh, additional functionality. Arc Max uh, is sort of the ChatGPT powered slash AI powered version of the browser. Now, the way people, uh, the, the, these people at Arc see the internet is they want to re do the way that we do internet browsing. And I think that's just fantastic. It's a fantastic idea. They think differently about instead of there's tabs and then you put in the web address or, or whatever, they see it the same way as you see something like illicit or something where you put in a question and you get an answer or something like perplexity mm. AI, right? Like mm. uh, illicit and perplexity AI are fantastic tools to get started on, on some of these journeys. And so in a similar way, Arc now lets you sort of open a query window you type in something that you want done from the browser and actually like breaks down step by step. It, it'll just do the searching for you. So you don't have to go to Google and search for it, but you say like, I want to book a thing at this restaurant. So first of all, it will know based on your location that that's the restaurant that you mean. And then it will find the booking page or it will find the, the phone number of it. And it will literally just do everything for you. And you just end up with either an open table link or a phone number and it'll just say, okay, call here now and let's do this. So it like skips you know, five steps in your process of, of doing this research. I, I think that's just fantastic. I think that's kind of what you want from some of these these tools as they're being built. You want something where you can just like an assistant, you can just say, here's the thing. Now go run off and, and do this thing for me and come back with the results. I don't want to query you or prompt you for, for every step along the way. Uh, yes. And I think that's kind of nice. Okay, I think that was yes. a big list already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very cool. I think uh, what we can definitely agree on is that we also it's always advise people to try out all these different tools instead of just going with JetGPT, even though that's the mm -hmm. one that people usually keep talking about. Also, uh, in the in the teaching that I'm doing, we always talk about JetGPT and not about all the other ones. But we definitely agree that there are a lot of cool tools out there that have very specific functions that they're better at than just basic ChatGPT because you need to teach ChatGPT so much to, exactly. to even, even get started. Mm. Um, how do you see AI shaping the future of writing and academic uh, publishing? Where, where are we going to be at in five to 10 years? <laughs> Yeah, so the way that I see this going is, uh, and this is actually a product that I'm currently working on, is called cyborg writing, because I feel like we're going to all be cyborg writers, essentially, we're going to have mm. our writing skills. And of course, somebody needs to train us in our writing skills, and I'm happy to do that. <laughs> but we also need to train people in how to use the robot tools, let's call them the AI tools, to help us, you know, create better output and enhance the stuff that we've written and and the tools are getting better every day and the approaches are, are getting better but there's still some sort of mindset that we need to bring to this like i said at the beginning and so training students and understanding that mindset of working with the ai to optimize their writing approach i think goes even beyond just academic writing i i, mm -hmm. I think and, and you see that of course with a lot of social media writers talking about this but i think it goes into copywriting and just all sorts of where writing is powerful and of course the creators in the creator economy are probably the first to adopt it because they have a lot of content to produce as you know <laughs> and so there there is this need to kind of create uh, consciously good content and optimize the way that these tools can work for these specific use cases. And in my particular case, I really want to find, okay, so what are the use cases 
specifically for accuracy in terms of citations, but also helping students structure their argument. This is one of the things that I always run into my, my writing courses and, and writing classes is when students talk to me about, you know, I've written methods was easy. I've written the results. I even got your help from the introduction. I just actually described that in my newsletter with like introduction funnels, right? Like where you start broad, and then you narrow it down to narrow a problem. Then you got the hourglass at the end where you kind of, okay, you got the method, everything specific results, and then you're kind of broadening it out at the end and you have this big impact conclusion on the on the field kind of situation. And so they, they're really asking, you know, how can I get better at discussion writing? And in the discussion, uh, this is, I think, the hardest part in academic writing for a lot of students. In the discussion, you can really shine by clarity and conciseness, of course, but also by having a little bit of help building your arguments because in the discussion you have to contextualize your findings and this is where some of these uh, co-writing tools can help us unearth some of these papers and and, and find good uh, citations that we might have not mentioned in the literature review yet but also to contrast opposing arguments that is something nobody teaches us in the sciences or in engineering to look at okay so the way that you structure this is actually a Here's a statement, but here's another statement. And that's what makes the discussion interesting to be like, okay, this is like ping pong. You got to be like contrasting arguments here and then riddles it down to, okay, big picture view that I think we can say. That makes an interesting discussion. And some of these co-writers actually have a functionality. I think Genier, for example, has a functionality where you can have an opposing argument and you can have a contrasting argument. And uh, I think Yomo does it as well. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so you you can easily have a paragraph and you can find the counter argument in a paragraph. And that already gets you started on this nice uh, friction that you need to have in your discussion section. And I think for that, it's super powerful. Mm -hmm. I think people that can leverage it can write better papers because I think in a lot of papers, the quality and the impact of the paper rests on the quality of the discussion and the, the quality of the argument made there. And that will then also have a great impact on public understanding of the paper because it's all about contextualizing this in the larger view of research. So yeah. AI tools can really help with that. Nice. So do you have any last bit of advice for any PhD students, early career researchers uh, with regards to AI moving forward? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is to check with your institution, check about the policies that are in place. There is still a lot of hesitancy. You don't want to be uh, a trailblazer when it can have a potential negative mm. impact on your PhD. So you always want to make sure what environment are you in and then to reach out to the people that are actively working with those tools uh, for advice, maybe, you know, for the courses that are being offered and also to kind of build your own understanding, like this skeptical approach that you bring to your research. You should, of course, also bring that skeptical approach to the way that you evaluate the AI tools for you. Because as you said, there are so many out there and it's really hard to distinguish which ones work. And so it's, it's really good for you to make up your own mind. And I think the best way to do that is with some help of like, for example, that, that webinar that we're hosting soon, where you get people giving you some of these tools, but you yourself have to make the assessment and say, okay, now I know these 15 tools, this is the use case that I have. Mm. Okay, what is the best way to get the right tool for my specific use case? Because we all have different scenarios. We're all in different disciplines. 
uh, not everyone, you know, has the problem that you have in molecular biology and not everyone has the problems that you have in engineering or something more technical. Those can be very different problems and you might need to use very different tools for that approach. So I, th I think getting some help and then but being yourself and making that decision is, is key, like really uh, trusting your instincts there and not just blindly buying, you know, 50 tools because everyone said, yeah, they're cool. <laughs> no. <laughs> um where can people find your your webinar about ai how can people how can people sign up yeah so the best way to find the ai webinar is to go to my landing page which is my last name nake n-a-c-k-e dot c-a for canada um and then they can find one of the first links is sign up for the webinar or also on my homepage lenartnake.com uh, this is also where I write my newsletter and other things. Uh, and so you'll be able to sign up for that newsletter. And I obviously pitch in my newsletter, the <laughs> webinar as well. So uh, not only do you get writing tips, but you also get a little bit of a behind the scenes look currently at me building that webinar. So some like exclusive slides and stuff. Oh, nice. and, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very excited about that. It's two weeks left now at this point of the recording. So hopefully... Sign up now, sign everyone. Up. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay. I guess with that said, thank you again, Leonard, for coming on the podcast and talking with us today. Yeah, yep. thank you so much. We learned a lot. Okay, for our listeners, if you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, you can reach out to us via our website, thestrugglingscientist.com. You can also check out our website to sign up for the awesome Journal of the Struggling Scientists, also known as our newsletter. And if you have enjoyed this episode, then leave us a rating on your favorite podcast listening platform, as this helps us reach out to more struggling scientists out there. Uh, you can also follow us on social media. Jaron, which ones are those again? X, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. Yes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next time. Bye. Bye.